John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Daryl, thank you for pointing that out. We have spent over a year in the Gospel of John, and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think it just is, right? Um, but uh, I, I do appreciate and I like what Daryl had to say as far as being able to look back in that journal. You hear me talk about it so often, about those journals back there, about pulling out your notebook, about opening your Bibles. Uh, it's for a reason. I mean, it's uh, hopefully that you can have uh, you can have some of these notes. You can have some of these thoughts, even if you say, well, Pastor James was crazy this morning. That's OK. Uh, it's good to have record of that. Um, and just to be able to look back over where we have been, where, where your mind was, where your mind has gone. Enough rambling about that. But I just cannot encourage you enough uh, to be jotting some thing, things down or drawing pictures, whatever you like to do there. Um, if that's your thing. So uh, this morning, we are going to start a brand new chapter, and it is going to be about Lazarus. And you know, we didn't miss Easter. According to the calendar, maybe we did. But, uh, but our hope, our resurrection is not based upon the calendar year. Uh, that is for sure, although we have somewhat missed out on that. But now as we're going to get into to the story of Lazarus, we're not going to be able to cover it all today. Not even going to try to do such a thing. Wouldn't do justice to this great, great story. Um, so we'll be spending a little bit of time here. But uh, uh, we're certainly going to see who has power over the grave. Who has power over the grave this morning? Who has power over death? And who has power over, over life? Who has power over creation? And who has power over what has been torn apart and what has been destroyed, what may be decaying into the ground, is certainly God has power over all. And so if you have your Bibles open, John chapter 11, I'm going to read the first 16 verses, and my intention is certainly to cover all 16. It is narrative, so it will go a little bit quicker uh, than maybe some of the other portions of the Gospel of John. So John chapter 11, starting to read at verse 1 through verse 16. And now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just seeking to stone you. Are you going to go there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. And now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. And so Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there 
so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, so that we may die with him. Lord, I thank you for, the, um, for your word. I thank you for... Um, I thank you for what it means to our life, for how it gives us direction, how it sets our course for life. And now, Lord, as we think about this story and so many thoughts that could be brought to it, Father, we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you illuminate this text for us so that we can understand it and know how to apply it to our life this morning? Father, we ask that you would have your way around our minds and in our hearts as we spend a few moments studying through it. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. A story about life. I have titled this a story about life. And the story that is before us has to be one of the greatest stories in all the biblical text. It is a story of a man who was dead and given life. It is a story of a man unknown to us, but known to Jesus. It is a story of an obscure man given a name by Jesus. This is a story of great joys and a story of life's greatest sorrows. This is a story about life itself. In many ways, this is a story just like yours. This is a story that has a backstory. This is a story of surprise, and this is a story of uniqueness of events and of personalities. This is a story about the foolishness of Jesus, and this is a story about the shortness of opportunity. This is a story about the reality of death, and this is a story about the realist in every group. This is a story about life itself, a life just like yours. Starts out here this morning, the beginning of this story, which is a little simple phrase, now a certain man, a somebody nobody heard of before. Now a certain man was sick. And John goes on to describe who this certain man was. He gives him a name, Lazarus of Bethany, just a little obscure town off a couple miles, two miles maybe from Jerusalem. The village where Mary and Martha, his sisters, were from. Lazarus had two sisters that we know very well. We don't know a whole lot about this particular man other than the story that is before us here this morning. But we do know a lot about his two sisters. And John is pretty quick to point out, to give the backstory to this story, to say who this Mary was. And he says, this is the Mary, because there were four Marys throughout the Bible that we're quite familiar with. You have Mary, the mother of Jesus. You have Mary, the wife of Cleopas. You have Mary Magdalene. And then you have this particular Mary here today, the sister of Martha. And he says, this is the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and then wiped down his feet with her hair. This is the Mary that we have before us. Now, something that I find somewhat interesting, because if you're a student of the Gospel of John, you may have already thought about it. It's like, wait a minute. How can you say that this is Mary who, who anointed Jesus and wiped her, his feet with her hair when you haven't even told the story yet? You're not going to tell the story until next chapter. 
And that would be correct. John doesn't tell us about that particular event he's referring to today until the next chapter. So what gives? Well, it's somewhat interesting uh, because Matthew records this story, and so does Mark. And Matthew was written around 70 A.D. Mark was written around 55 A.D. And the Gospel of John was written around 90 A.D. And so obviously that's like 20 to 35 years the Gospel of John was written after Matthew and Mark, who both had recorded this account of Mary in her anointing on Jesus. And so John is assuming that these people, the people he's writing to, would have been quite familiar with the event that he's referring to here to this morning in our text. And that's why he's just simply inserting, as, as, a, as a matter of fact, if you will, to make sure that as he gets into the story that you know about which Mary he is talking about. And he's talking about this particular Mary who done this particular action, and it is her brother who has, it is her brother who has fallen ill. Fallen ill, chapter or verse 3 of our chapter today. And so the sister sent word to Jesus, went to him saying, that, hey, Lord, behold, he, the guy that you love, the guy that you care, your friend has fallen sick. And I find this somewhat interesting here this morning because it's like, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick, is sick. Now, the word behold right here, it, it just simply means uh, to see or, or to look. It, it needs to give us a sense of to introduce something uh, uh, that's unexpected, something uh, uh, that we're supposed to take notice of. It's, the, it's, it's a word that would say, hey, look here, or pay attention what is before you. It's something that, uh, a little word that comes before an event that the author wants us to, to take notice, notice of. And a couple of examples of where John uses it. He uses it four times in the Gospel of John. And just to give you a little bit of an example of how this particular word here is used. And so I want to cover those few verses. And this word is used in John chapter 3, verse 26, when the disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus and say, Hey, John the Baptist, you know that fellow that you had pointed out? He's across the river, and behold, He's baptizing, and all are coming to him. The disciples of John the Baptist are saying it in a way that they're surprised of what is going on. Well, this word is also used in John chapter 7, verse 26, by those who were surprised at the inaction of the religious leaders. When they say, look, he, Jesus, is speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that he is the Christ, do they? I mean, here are the people saying, look, you religious leaders, you're all up, up in arms. You're all, you know, your, your hair is on end. You know, you're, you're, you're becoming quite angry at this particular person. And here he is speaking in the public, this person that you really want to kill. And there he is publicly speaking, and you're doing nothing about it. I mean, they're surprised at their inaction. We also see the word being used here in John chapter 12, verse 19, by the Pharisees, surprised of, of how the people are embracing Jesus. And they say, you see, that you are not doing any good. You're not doing any good by trying to suppress the voice of Jesus because look, look, the world has gone after him. Look, all the efforts you've been putting towards trying to keep the voice of Jesus silent, and look, everyone is still going after him. And then here in our fourth 
uh, the fourth time here is, is in our text here today, where it says, Behold, Lazarus is sick. Is sick. You know, the ESV, unfortunately, doesn't translate this word over. That is there in the Greek. And they don't translate it over into the English because it sounds a little bit sloppy in English, I guess. But by, by not translating it over, I do think that they're missing, the, the translators are, are missing a bit of a point that needs to be made. And that is that Lazarus wasn't just sick for a period of time. Lazarus, it's not something, an illness that came over Lazarus and it, and it drug on for a long time. It was a sudden thing. Suddenly, a very healthy man becomes ill. Suddenly, a healthy man falls ill and doesn't just fall ill. He falls ill and dies quite quickly. And this is a shock. This is a surprise to the system. That's the importance of this particular word here and why it should be in our text. Sudden events do take place in our life, do they not? Sudden events take place in, in your life. Suddenly, as we're told at times, we hear sometimes, there's a medical diagnosis that we don't like. You say, how can that be? The person was doing so well, there was nothing wrong, and all of a sudden you show up to the doctor, and the doctor gives you this negative report. I mean, suddenly, for no explanation, you lose your job. Suddenly, for no explanation, your marriage doesn't go the way that you want it to do. Suddenly... Without explanation, one of your best friends turns their back on you or stabs you in the back, if you, if you will, as we hear sometimes, or just continues to respond to you. Ghosting, I think they call that. Is that right? Nonetheless, suddenly these things can happen to our life. What do we do? Where do we turn when these sudden events happen in our life? And I think that is the point that we want to make here as a way of application here this morning as we look at this story of Lazarus. That this was a story that took them by surprise. This was an illness, and this was a death that was very sudden, that was very suddenly came upon them. And as Christians, it is a matter of how or who we look to for our answers, for the answers to our stories, is it not? Where do we go to make sense of those inexplicable things that we don't understand that, that suddenly come up into our life? And so we also see that, that how do we know why things happen to our life? When those things come suddenly into us, how, how do we know when things happen to us, both the good and the bad? You know, I see very few people wrestling with, I just can't understand why these good things are happening to me. God, what gives? <laughs> right? I don't understand. We don't say that. Right? And, and, and I'm, make, you know, I'm saying this of myself, but why is that? It's only when a bad thing happens that, God, what's going on here? <laughs> well... Anyways, enough of that. But, you know, God is in control, is it not? And what happens to the, those unique events in our life that we'll call them unique events in our life that we can't quite explain? Well, we've also seen this in John chapter 9, the third verse, when the disciples asked Jesus about the blind man, who sinned, Lord? Who sinned that this man was being born by? See, see, obviously somebody sinned or, or this bad thing wouldn't have happened. Right? So who sinned? His parents? Did his parents sin? Or did he sin that he should be born blind? And Jesus has the disturbing response, does he not? When he says, no one, but so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Are you okay with that? I mean, seriously? I'm going to be born blind just so you can get an attaboy? I mean, if we want to completely look at it from a human perspective, right? Hmm. We know not why 
or how God uses the events that come into our life. We don't know. We don't know how God uses those things. We may never completely know how God uses some of those things that come into our life. We also don't know completely how God uses our personalities, do we? I mean, certainly we don't have to talk about personalities this morning, do we? They're always before us, and they seem to be magnified when we watch the news today. But we have it among our group here this morning, too. I have some personality traits that you question, how can that be anything good? Right? And when we look at each other, is this the same deal? I want you to look at at verse 5 here of our text. When John goes on to tell the story here, he says, Now Jesus loved Martha, and Jesus loved her sister, which would have been Mary, and Jesus loved Lazarus. Jesus loved all three of these people. All three very different people. All three have different personalities. All three bring something different to the table. When we think about Martha, we can think of Martha, and it depends how we want to view Martha. We can look at her as a real go-getter, and we certainly like go-getters, do we not? Also, they're called workaholics, but we don't want to use that word. Or we can call her a busybody, but we certainly don't want to use that word. Well, this was Martha. And then we look at Mary, and oh, she's just always sitting around. I mean, what's she doing anyways? Wiping her hair? I mean, that's just gross. What is she doing anyways, right? But she's just lazy. And then there's Lazarus. He's, a, he's somebody that nobody knows. He's just a nobody. And yet it tells us in our text today that Jesus loved all three of these characters. And I certainly don't want to make more out of the text than what is here. But I think, I think we could extract from here that personalities are a good thing. Each one of us has been given a personality, be it a Martha, be it a Mary, be it a Lazarus. Let's use it to the glory of God, right? I mean, it tells us here, Jesus loved all three. All three different, and all three are loved by Jesus, right? And we see it in our churches. We see it wherever we go. Personalities, different traits, different gifts, as we often call them, they're all needed, right? They're all needed to edify the body. Paul talks about parts of the body and how these things are needed. And I think we can see that, and we can deduce that from our text this morning, that personalities, events happen for a reason, And we've been given our particular personality for a reason also. We need to surrender them to God and allow God to use them how He created us to use. And and we do see, we could also call that the foolishness of Jesus, could we not? The foolishness of Jesus who thinks that He can actually use such a person as I or or person such as Lazarus or Martha or Mary or or fill in the blank who you like there. I mean, if we look at verses 6 to 8, it says, So when Jesus heard that He was sick, He stayed two more days. Well, why did he do that? I mean, I'm not sure that's how I would respond. I think I might pack it up and go right away. Why did he hang out for another two days until Lazarus was good and dead? Right? I mean, so it takes a a, a day for the news to reach Jesus. So he waited two more days, and then it would have taken a day for him to get to Jerusalem. That's four days. Well, we're told... Next week, we'll see that Lazarus was already dead four days. So would have it really mattered if Jesus would have packed it up and left right away? Well, I think we're going to discover that why Jesus purposefully did not do that. But nonetheless, nonetheless, we certainly see in verses 21 and 32 that we'll look at next week that Mary and Martha both said, Jesus, if you would have been here, 
My brother would have not have died. Jesus, if you would have been there. Jesus, I was praying to you. Jesus, why did you allow these things to happen? That is what's being said in this story here today. The sisters are asking that question, and it's a valid question. It's a question that, if I were to to guess, has also been part of your story at times. God, if only. Jesus, if you would have. If you would have saved me from myself, you wouldn't have allowed me to do that. Whatever it may be, we have that. I mean, we have it in this story. This is such a beautiful story about life itself. In essence, they're saying, though, Jesus, the disciples, when Jesus says, let's go, the disciples are like, Jesus, okay, are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? They were just trying to stone you. And now you want to go back through Lazarus again, or you want to back, go through, back through Judea again? Right? I mean, surely Lazarus would understand. Surely Lazarus would understand that, that God would not ask you, Jesus, to risk your life. That God would not ask you, Jesus, to turn your life upside down just to go be with a friend, whatever it may be. God would not ask you to turn your workplace upside down, turn your life upside down, go across the pond, ask you to, you follow where I'm going here this morning? God asks us things of us that maybe if we had some disciples like Jesus, they would say, are you crazy? Are you crazy? What's God asking of you this morning? I I wonder. I wonder. I might be reading into the text there a little bit now this morning, but I think it applies, does it not? That's what the disciples were asking. Jesus, are you crazy? You're going to risk your life to go be with a friend. Surely your friend would understand you can't, you can't do that. And Jesus reminds them of the shortness of opportunity. He's like, no, no, actually, in verses uh, 9 through 10, he says, no, a- actually, Jesus says, there's only 12 hours in a day. If I had a nickel for every time I heard my mom tell me, <laughs> tell me there's only so many hours in a day, she'd say that, but this is the one thing she used to tell me a lot, and that was don't wish your life away. Don't wish your life away. I heard that constantly. I was always looking for the next adventure. I, I, I mean, I, my mind kind of gets bored very quickly, and so I'm off to the next thing. I just want to hurry up and get to the next phase of life. Don't wish your life away. And Jesus, in essence, is saying, look, fellas, there's only 12 hours in the day. There's only 12 hours in the day, meaning, hey, take advantage of the daylight that is before us. There's only so many hours in a day. We must use them wisely. There are only so many problems in our life, in life. Let's use our problems wisely. There's so many different personalities that make up any group of people. There's only so many people that have your personality. Use your personality wisely. I think that's what Jesus is saying in these couple verses. And then moving on to verses 11 through 15, that we think that the disciples here, I should say, the disciples think that they caught a break. When Jesus says, okay, well, I'll tell you what, our friend Lazarus, he, he's fallen asleep. Oh, great. So we don't have to go after all Jesus because he's just sleeping and surely he'll wake up again. It's okay. No big deal. No worries. He'll be all right. All right? Says he's fallen asleep. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. Uh, yeah, kind of, Jesus. You said he's fallen asleep, so what am I supposed to, what am I supposed to think, right? And so Jesus told them plainly, no, Lazarus is dead. He's dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. Well, we'll get to that. What's this, what's this thing about falling asleep and not falling asleep? I mean, really, if, he's, if he died, why wouldn't you just say 
he has died. But sleeping is something that is often referred to, um, in, in, especially in the life of, of a Christian. Those who have fallen asleep, ser- sleeping is, is certainly a softer approach to someone than saying that they have fallen asleep versus, versus died in, in some of those things. But, but for the Christian, right? For the Christian, I think falling asleep is, is an accurate statement. We have it throughout the whole biblical text, this reference to sleep. And to give you just a few this morning as a way of cross-references, we look at Acts chapter 7, verse 60, at the stoning of Stephen. When Stephen was stoned, they said, oh, and at the end of that, Stephen fell asleep. He fell asleep. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 52, at the crucifixion of Jesus, when Jesus died, the tombs were opened, and the saints who had fallen asleep were seen walking around. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 18, we are told that if, if Christ is not raised, we sang about that this morning, if Christ is not raised, our faith is worthless, and we are still in our sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished. But Paul, he continues in verse 19, and he says, if we only hope in Christ in this life, we are most to be pitied. As followers of Jesus, we know that death is not the end. It is only the beginning. That's a line that we hear at just about every single funeral service, and appropriately so. It is only the beginning. In fact, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul wrestles with this very issue. When he says this, he says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. But I don't know which to choose. What, he thinks he gets a choice, evidently. I desire to depart and be with Christ. So to depart, Paul means to die. Paul means to to sleep. Paul means that it would be, be better for him if he were to depart and be with Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4.14. It says, we are not to be uninformed about those who are asleep. So we do not grieve as those who have no hope in Christ. For if we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Over and over and over again throughout the biblical text, we are reminded that for the Christian, it's not death. It is sleep. It is sleep. How else are we supposed to understand the life after this? Life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that we are, while we are at home in the body, it's where we are, home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. We are of good courage. I say and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. I always find those words somewhat troubling. But there are times where you come across a particular person, and they certainly take that verse, those thoughts, very seriously. But for the Christian, for the Christian, isn't that our aim? Isn't that our hope? And that's the hope that we have in Christ, that as Christians, we are safe in our current state, in our current life, and we are eternally secured. Isn't that where the Christian finds themselves? So if we're living, if we're not living, As Christians, we're secure in Christ. 
And, Paul, and Jesus tells the guys, look, I'm glad I wasn't there. So that this is the principle that I can teach you. This is the principle that I will show you. Of course, that will be to come. And in verse 15, he says, I'm glad for your sake that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us, let us go to him. And then we come to verse 16, because there's a realist in every bunch. And I, and I like this guy, Thomas. He gets a bad rap, but, but I like him. He says, well, guys, <clears throat> it's obvious we can't convince Jesus. We can't talk some sense into him. So let's just go. Let's just go with him, and we might as well be killed right alongside of him also. Interesting. What a pessimist. Or he's a realist. Myron Webster just, I what he has to say about this word, realist. And this is what he defines it. This is how our dictionary would define that word. It says a person who recognizes what is real or possible in a particular situation. One who accepts and deals with things as they are. Well, that would certainly be Thomas from his perspective. I mean, Peter, he's the optimist of the bunch, right? I mean, he's gung-ho for anything right off the bat. Let's act first and think about it second. That's Peter. Thomas is like, well, fellas, this looks like a bad idea. Man, what a guy that would be in the crowd. I'd rather be a Peter. Never mind. But you know, Thomas, Thomas gets a bad rap. And yet I'm not so sure that should be how we should think about Thomas. In fact, in John chapter 15, verse 5, when Jesus is speaking of his death, and Jesus says, look, guys, I'm going to go away, but where I'm going, you're going to come also. And Thomas asks the obvious question, right? Lord, we don't even know where you're going. How are we going to know the way? Well, Thomas asked the question everyone must, must have been thinking. And after the death of Jesus, poor Thomas, also called Doubting Thomas, he makes his most famous statement. But he says, guys, I know you said that you've seen the risen Lord, and I wasn't there to see it. I know I've spent a lot of years with you all, but I, I don't, unless I feel his hands, unless I see the nail prints in his hands and feet, unless I see the side where I've seen the sword go into, I'm not, I'm not going to believe. I'm not going to believe. Is Thomas really a doubter, or is he a realist? We shall see. But what about you? Where are you this morning? Thomas's statement in verse 16 may be a bit of a pessimist, but I'm not sure he's a pessimist. I do think he's a, he's a realist. Thomas was a realist, and he understood the cost of following Jesus. He understood what it would cost to follow Jesus, and he was willing to do so. And Thomas knew very well the cost of following Jesus was probably going to cost him his very life. We take it as a pessimistic statement. I don't know. I think I take it as a man who's all in. A guy who's totally surrendered out to his Lord, surrendered out to what he has seen Jesus do, and although he can't fully understand, he knows Jesus has never left him down up to this point. Isn't that what Jesus asks of us? Matthew chapter 16, verse 25, when Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Thomas said, yep, let's go, I'll die with him. Well, what about you? What about you? Are you still hanging on to your life? Or have you let go? Lord, I pray this morning as we think about a story that has 
so many different faucets to it, so many different angles to it, so many different perspectives that can be pulled from it. One of the things that we know for sure from it is that you are in control and that we are not, and that you ask us to give up our life and follow you. And so, Lord, I pray this morning as we think about some of these thoughts, Father, those things, Lord, that you're speaking to us, that you've placed into our minds, Lord, if those things are from you, Father, may they have their way. Those things, Lord, that are not, Lord, just remove those from our memory. And Father, may you indeed have your way in each of our lives and also in the life of our church. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.